0: I've been thinking about so many different software projects and software systems that I have built throughout my lifetime and throughout my career. And as you can imagine, when you engage in those pieces of software, right, you had the ideas down on paper, you had what was in your head, but at some point you had to put hands on keyboard, you had to put keys in, keystrokes in, and code into the system. And of course, the actual software had to come to life. And most importantly, that software had to make it to production and become a living, breathing thing that users engaged with, where you could get real feedback. But all along that journey, things fundamentally changed from the moment you had it as an idea in your head to software actually built and compiled and ready to run. And, of course, software and a system that users actually saw. So I've been thinking about that as I talked to Ben now, co-founder and CTO of Cockroach Labs, the distributed database company. And I find that name, Cockroach Labs, so very interesting. The name's been really good. It's a, it's a really distinctive, uh, memorable
1: name. Unlike some of our peers in the, in the database space, it's, uh, you, you know, once you hear CockroachDB, you'll always remember us. But when you get outside of tech circles, it, uh, it can be a little more of a liability. I was uh, applying for a mortgage a couple of years ago and got asked whether I, uh, whether I owned an exterminator company.
0: <laughs> I can imagine you out there with a backpack on, a little spray can, you know, making sure that you fix all the bugs in someone's house. This is Code Comments an original podcast from Red Hat. I'm Burr Sutter, and here again is Ben Darnell.
1: So the story actually starts about 10 years ago at another startup called Viewfinder. Uh, We were building a mobile photo sharing app, and I was with Spencer Kimball and Peter Mattis, who would go on to be my co-founders at Cockroach Labs. We'd all spent a lot of time at Google, and this was um, one of our first uh, experiences building an app from scratch outside of, uh, outside of Google. And so we were looking around for uh, databases to use, and we, uh, we were really kind of disappointed in everything that we saw. Um, we had gotten used to uh, Google's uh, in-house technologies like uh, GFS and Bigtable and all these, uh, all these kinds of massively scalable and highly available uh, systems. And uh, we were looking at what our options were out in the real world, and uh, and nothing really satisfied us. We were looking at uh, at things like sharding MySQL, or um, Cassandra, or uh, HBase, or uh, DynamoDB. We saw all these things as uh, as having a lot of compromises for our use case in comparison to uh, some of the things that we'd used before. And so Spencer, my co-founder, actually wrote the first version of the CockroachDB design doc while we were at Viewfinder. And, you know, Peter and I kind of had to talk him down because we couldn't build a
0: world-class database and the next big photo sharing app at the same time. So you obviously discovered while at Google, there was these limitations in the actual database server that you're using there. But at the same time, when you came out of Google, uh, I don't know if you landed directly at the startup at that point in time, but you certainly were finding limitations with the open source ecosystem as it stood, meaning you looked at MySQL, you looked at Cassandra's, you looked at PostgreSQL, et cetera, and you found limits there. Can you tell us more about that journey from Google all the way into that startup and where you were looking at the open source ecosystem around databases?
1: Sure. So I actually went through a number of startups in between Google and this photo sharing startup. I was at FriendFeed right before they got acquired by Facebook um, and a startup called Brizzly, which got acquired by AOL. And then I'd been at Dropbox for a couple of years. And all of these startups, they all had something in common. They were all using Sharded MySQL as their primary data store. And so I got to see really firsthand how painful that could be at large scale. And I knew that that was not something that I was eager to uh, eager to sign up for again. Because we saw that uh, as the system grows, all these different shards—they all fail independently. Um, things are, but when you get up to uh, to Dropbox's scale, for example, there were database shards failing on on a weekly basis um, and needing manual intervention to uh, to clean that up. Whereas at Google, with uh, with Bigtable and systems like that, we just didn't have to worry about individual failures in the same way. One thing that really defines the CockroachDB approach is that at scale. Failures become very frequent, you can have uh, small partial failures uh, on a daily or or weekly basis, and it's important to make these non-events. And that means that, you know, instead of having a big process for failing over from a primary database to a secondary, you have uh, an automated process that can move a small chunk of data over from its primary to its secondary transparently and without losing any data. Um, this is a big difference with uh, with a lot of traditional databases. Is that failover um, comes with a risk of losing uh, the last little bit of data whenever you flip the switch. But in CockroachDB, everything is replicated consistently, so that uh, the failure doesn't uh, doesn't lose any data, and and therefore you can uh, you can have this uh, failover process be much more automated and faster and less disruptive, um, because you know it's not going to lose any of your data.
0: One of the things that's fundamental to the architecture, right, is that you guys have a distributed database. It's a distributed system. And that means there could be network partitions, there could be network failure in between any of the nodes, there could be a a node failure, meaning one of the actual database engines just goes away, the virtual machine it's in, or the actual hardware it's on just dies. Can you talk more about how that consensus is reached? How does that, what algorithm are you using within this context?
1: The whole system is built on a distributed consensus algorithm to bring all the the nodes in the cluster into into sync. Uh, The specific algorithm that we use is called Raft. It was very recent when we first started using it. Um, it was just uh, just a couple of years old at that point. The classic distributed consensus algorithm is called Paxos, and it's notoriously complex and hard to understand. RAF came along in the last decade and promised to be a much, uh, much easier to understand and implement consensus algorithm, and so that's what we chose to use in CockroachDB. And the essential idea in all of these uh, distributed consensus algorithms is... Uh, they're all more or less built around the idea of running a lot of little elections. Um, and so you, have a, you typically have a leader. In CockroachDB, we have a leader for each range of data. So we have many, the data is divided up into many, many chunks called ranges, and, and each of those has its own leader so that this leadership responsibility can be spread across all of the nodes in the cluster. And whenever you want to write to the database, that essentially uh, gets put to a vote of all the replicas of that piece of data, and you need a majority of those to come back. And so that's what gives you the ability to survive failures, because you can have, you, you don't need all of the nodes to respond, you just need uh, two out of three or three out of five. And so you're able to tolerate one or two uh, node failures at any given time, and then you have enough nodes that survive that have the data that are able to then replace any copies that, uh, that get lost. This is the key mechanism that we use to, uh, to ensure that your data is always safe, uh, no
0: matter what happens to the underlying uh, machines and hardware. So what Ben is telling us is that when you actually have distributed work, a distributed piece of software around multiple machines, especially with a network in between, things can go badly, things can break. And what you want to make sure is that your consensus algorithm, your consensus protocol is verifying that enough of the machines acknowledge that they have written the data properly. And if you've done that, you can feel very secure and very safe that your software and your data has been persisted correctly. Conceptualizing an algorithm on paper, certainly designing it out is one thing, but actually building it into a piece of software where you have to put hands on keyboard and create the code is a whole different thing altogether. Ben told me about his actual experience where he actually started laying down the keystrokes and building out that code around the consensus algorithm and how that fit into the overall perspective of what they needed to build for Cockroach Labs.
1: I started working in Cockroach in earnest um, at a, actually at a hack week uh, when we were working at Square, and Cockroach was just uh, just an open source project at this time. And so I had this hack week blocked off, and my first, uh, the first code that I wrote for CockroachDB was actually an implementation of Raft. And in that week, I was able to implement, I would say, probably the first 80% of the, uh, of the Raft algorithm. And then it turns out that you know, we'd spend uh, upwards of the next year working on what I'd say the, is the last 20%. So getting started, um, we were able to implement the happy path where you have a fixed set of nodes and uh, you know, there's no failures or there's certain types of failures and everything is, uh, is proceeding uh, fairly normally and everything's working and you know, certain types of failures are, are tolerated. But then where it really gets tricky is when you have to deal with changing the membership of the cluster. The simple implementation of a distributed consensus algorithm always starts just talking about the the membership of the cluster being a fixed thing supplied from the outside. But if you want to run this at scale, you've got to have nodes entering and leaving the cluster in a fairly automated way. And so you need to be able to safely add and remove nodes. This is where a lot of the subtlety comes in. There's, uh, you, you need to make sure that the nodes that are being removed from service are properly removed and they're able to sync up with all their peers before they go so that you don't leave the cluster in a fragile state. And you need, um, you, you need to introduce new nodes in a way that everyone agrees on on who gets a vote essentially in those elections. Um, you've got to make sure that the, uh, the membership roster of the cluster is uh, is very consistently maintained. On paper, it tends to be a small fraction of what the protocol looks like. You know, there's a maybe a page or two out of a 15-page paper on Raft uh, devoted to this topic, but in
0: terms of implementation complexity, it's much hairier than it looks. I do appreciate the point you made there about the happy path and the fact that, you know, something as simple as how many nodes there are to begin with and how nodes maybe join the cluster or leave the cluster over time, that represents a much harder, much more challenging set of algorithms, if you will, and things to figure out. As you pull all those elements together.
1: Yeah, you know this next twenty percent kind of took us uh, the better part of a year, but then in the course of that year, we ended up connecting with the team uh, working on Etcd at CoreOS, and they uh, they had one of the most mature Go language implementations of Raft at the time, and they were they were kind of going through the same thing. They had implemented the first eighty plus percent of the protocol, and they were working through all of the final edge cases, and so they were they, they were realizing. Um, how much work was still ahead of them and us, and how much overlap there was, and so they suggested that we join forces and uh, and share a single implementation.
0: You mentioned that you were doing this over at Square, and you were able to contribute that code to an open source project. It sounds like at the time, but there were other maturing implementations based for the Raft protocol in Go, written in the Go lang programming language. Uh, that was etcd, and also from Hashicorp. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so when we were starting the CockroachDB project, well, there, there were a lot of implementations of Raft in Go at the time, actually. Uh, because of the timing of the Raft paper and the uh, introduction of the Go programming language, it turns out that a lot of people used Raft as kind of a starter project to learn the Go language, um, which is an interesting uh, interesting trend that we saw in uh, whatever year this was, about 2014. So before I started implementing Raft from scratch by myself, I looked at the two major competing implementations from HashiCorp and, uh, and CoreOS, and so they weren't quite suitable for us. One of the things that's unusual about CockroachDB and the way that we use distributed consensus algorithms is that we, we run a lot of different instances of the algorithm. So in CockroachDB, we divide the data up into many thousands of independent ranges, each of which is a separate instantiation of the Raft protocol. Whereas in something like uh, etcd or console, you really just have one instance of Raft for the entire the entire system and so we're very concerned about the scalability of the protocol implementation and so we saw that uh, that both etcd and uh, consoles raft implementations would do things like startup go routines in the background for the protocol and this kind of background processing when you multiply it by a thousand or ten thousand different uh, different instances of the algorithm running in parallel this can really be a drain on the node's resources and so we needed to be able to run um, many instances of Raft without uh, the overhead of a, of a Go routine per instance, and that was the original uh, the original reason why I started implementing the protocol from scratch, even though there were these existing um, high quality implementations out there.
0: Well, one thing I really love about the story you're telling us here is that it started with a proprietary solution to a hard, hard problem. In this case, a distributed computing, a distributed database. And then as you moved out of that organization into more startups, you then found that this did not exist in this world. And what's amazing about this from an open source perspective is you as a software engineer had that itch you wanted to scratch. You had that problem you wanted to solve and you did not see a perfect solution in the space. Even if there were other open source projects that were already implementing the raft protocol in Go, you know, in the Go programming language, like the folks over at FCD and HashiCorp, and then you found that collaborative opportunity with some of these other players in the market to actually really build out that element of your application architecture. I would like to double click and drill down just for a moment on that multi-raft idea, the multi-raft protocol, because you mentioned that, that, you know, the current open source implementations out there were single-raft implementations, they had those background Go routines that were somewhat problematic, at least at great scale. Can you describe for, let's say, our average listener who's only perhaps just worked with a relational database before, not necessarily thought too much about sharding per se, or the fact that, you know, there's sort of these different indexing solutions. What does that really look like from the user's perspective, that multi-raft protocol, that ability to, you know, basically use raft around, I assume, what is a group of rows in the database?
1: Well, for one thing, to an end user of CockroachDB, it doesn't really look like much because it's all, uh, it's all happening under the hood. It's all basically invisible. Okay. But in terms of what we mean when we say multi-raft, This is uh, about the fact that uh, one server in your CockroachDB cluster may be responsible for uh, for 10, 20, 30,000 ranges. And so you're running 30,000 instances of the Raft protocol in a 10 node cluster, for example, you're going to have um, a lot of overlap in the membership of those uh, Raft instances. And so one of the things that Raft has to do is it has to send heartbeats between all the different peers of the node. And so you have these heartbeats going back and forth with these uh, with these nodes just essentially asking each other, "Are you alive and able to respond?" And so these messages are flying back and forth. But if you're, you know, in the GTB case, you don't want to have thirty thousand heartbeat messages flying back and forth every second. That just uh, you know wastes all your computing resources. You want to be able to say, you know, I see that I've got ten thousand Raft groups, but I've only got nine actual peers. So I can I want to be able to send nine heartbeats instead of uh, instead of thirty thousand. That's the kind of thing that we do in multi Raft. Is we recognize the higher level. Um, higher level structure and uh, and try to uh, coalesce and consolidate a lot of this background activity across the many different independent RAF groups in the that, that exist under the hood.
0: I can see how this is incredibly valuable as the number of nodes grows, as well as the volume of data in that database grows, right? You want to make sure that it's not so chatty across the wire and there's not so much interaction, as you mentioned, just a heartbeat going back and forth. That does add a ton of overhead, both at the CPU level as well as the network chattiness, right? Uh, for these things to simply say, "Hey, I'm still alive. I'm still okay. We don't need to elect another leader at this point in time." Can you tell us more about that last twenty percent? Right? If we had eighty percent done in a single week, and you were working with these new partners, what did it take to actually get us the rest of the way? What, what kind of issues did you bump into? What kind of problems did you solve?
1: Yeah. So the last twenty percent is all about uh, is, is all about kind of chasing down all of the uh, all the corner cases and edge cases um so in the in the raft protocol as we implemented it it turned out to be very safe in the sense that uh, we never had a lot of problems with the protocol doing a bad thing um, but we did have problems with liveness the way that under uh, under adverse conditions it would fail to do anything at all that that was really uh, you, you know trying to to maximize that availability was really the uh, the, the long tail of work uh, to get to 100% done um, and of course, you can never make it uh, never make it perfectly available. Um, this is one of the things we learned from the uh, from the cap theorem. Raft is ultimately not uh, not an available protocol in the uh, in the cap theorem's terminology. it's a, it's a consistent protocol. And so it does have times where it can't make progress. But you know trying to get as close to that ideal as we can
0: in uh, in practical real world situations. Well, you mentioned cap theorem there, and certainly a lot of people have definitely heard about that. And, right, there's always the the concept of, well, you get two out of three, right, in that scenario, which is, we know, not exactly accurate, but the concept of consistency versus availability when facing a network partition, right? So the network partition being a key aspect of that, you know, the failure between the different nodes. So in that case, you know, you mentioned that availability versus consistency. It sounds like CockroachDB focuses on the consistency side, and and Raft algorithm, Raft protocol definitely had you focus on that.
1: That's right, so the cap theorem says that uh in the face of our partition, we're a distributed system we can't uh, we can't choose to be partition intolerant because uh, partitions will always happen, so that means we have to choose uh when there is a partition, we have to choose whether we're going to keep consistency or availability, and so when push comes to so- shove when we uh, when we have to choose one or the other, we always choose consistency but uh you, you know within that framework, the cap theorem's trade offs only apply in a fairly narrow window of situations, and so The vast majority of the time when we're doing things to improve the availability of the system, you know, we're not anywhere near the the limits where the CAP theorem starts to apply.
0: Getting to 1.0 is always an amazing moment. Your software, your creation now has to face real end users. And getting your very first customer for a database is not so easy. It is a non-trivial thing that you're asking people to do. As you know, data is one of the most important assets in your organization. Ben told me a story about one of their biggest and earliest customers having a failure that resulted in data loss and how his team rallied to address it.
1: There were actually two different versions of the Raft paper. The first version described a very complicated membership change protocol called joint consensus, which was very robust, but uh, was very, uh, very complex to implement. Um, And then there was a a second paper on Raft, which uh, introduced a major simplification in this area it said that you didn't need the joint consensus protocol as long as you were only ever adding or removing one node at a time. And so we said, that's great, we'll just implement the simpler version. The problem is that if you wanna move a replica instead of just adding or reducing capacity, that means you have to model it as an add followed by a remove or a remove followed by an add. And if you model it as a remove followed by an add, which happens to be, um, happened to be the way that we implemented it at first, then you're in this uh, you're in this very fragile state in between. So you originally have a three replica configuration, and you need two out of three to be able to make progress. If you go down to two replicas, then all of a sudden you can't uh, handle any more failures. You need two out of two to be a majority, um, because if you just have one uh, just one vote in a two member uh, cluster, then that's a tie. And so there's this window in between going down from three to two, and then coming back up to uh, to three. Where you're you're vulnerable, you can have a uh, have one uh, one loss that can lead you to uh, to losing your quorum. And uh, this sounds like it's a risk of going down from three to two uh, before coming back up. It actually works out um, in the other way as well. If you go from three nodes, add the add the fourth node before removing one of the nodes, that can lead to problems, um, especially in a uh, in a multi-region or multi-data center case, because then you've got uh, you find yourself with four nodes instead of three. And if you only have if you have three data centers that you're working with, then two of those nodes have to be in the same data center, and they could suffer correlated failures. That's something that we saw here, where um, uh, one of these uh, customer clusters experienced uh, two failures at the same time because of a, of a region or, or availability zone uh, data center outage, and then because it happened at just the wrong time when the cluster had had up, temporarily up replicated into this more fragile state. Then they lost quorum, and that range was uh, was broken until we could get in to, uh, to manually fix it. And so, in order to fix this, we did some quick fixes at first to try and uh, you know repair the immediate damage to get this uh, get this user cluster back up and running. The long term fix was to go back to this uh, to this feature of joint consensus that was featured in the uh, in the original Raft paper, but was kind of deprecated and uh, and almost removed from the second edition because it wasn't uh, it wasn't seen as being practically necessary. But um, at least in our, again, coming back to multi-raft and the way that we uh, we have these this large number of uh, the large number of raft protocol instances uh, undergoing constant uh, up and down replications, we, we were much more vulnerable to this risk from doing the uh, the one replica at a time change. And so we needed a uh, we needed a protocol that could actually guarantee that it was going to be correct even in the face of uh, of failures during the membership change process. And so this, um, this ended up not getting fixed until, I think it was about two years after, after 1.0. Um, it was just a, a very sizable project. We needed to uh, lay the groundwork over, uh, over a long period of time to be able to make that, uh, make that transition. But in the end, um, again, because we were working with uh, the etCD team on this, um, the, same, uh, the, the work that we were doing here was also able to benefit
0: that project as well. What I find interesting about this part of the story is that you guys actually saw that there was a great need for something that other people perceived as optional, right? You mentioned the atomic replica changes, the replication happening, right, and having guarantees, if you will, as to how those replicas get started up, get shut down, and making sure that they are happening, let's say in this case, across multiple availability zones. I, I want to know more about that, because that, that suggests to me that other people had not gotten to the level of complexity in terms of their implementation with the RAF protocol that you guys had, or they had not pushed it enough in production to see some of these edge cases occur in a real production environment with a real distributed database engine. Why do you think you guys were the first ones to really kind of stumble across that and realize optionality or being optional was not really optional?
1: I think it comes down to the uh, the, the fact that when you're operating at scale, everything has to be automated. Um there's an assumption in a lot of these papers, you know the reason that the uh, the raft authors decided that uh, that you didn't really need the uh, the more complex protocol is because they were envisioning adding a replica to the system to be kind of a rare manual event. It would be an operator somewhere pushing a button, um, and that operator would presumably know to you know look at the network status and not uh, not do it when uh, you know if there's any signs of uh, of trouble, so it's only going to be executed under kind of best case conditions. So you know, it's it's just not a not not considered a completely routine operation like it has to be when you're
0: operating at massive scale. Well, you mentioned that you actually got, you guys discovered that you needed this capability by working with a real world customer who was actually having a real world struggle at that moment. I'm kind of curious to know what did the, your world look like at the moment you guys realized there was a real customer with a real problem were, you know, losing data. They had downtime. And of course they wanted to get back up again and get back to processing again. But was it a whole company, you know, hair on fire? We got to ring the fire alarm and get focused on it. Can you kind can, can of describe the environment and how you guys reacted to that situation? And then of course then discovered, okay, this optional thing is really not that optional. We need to really understand how to make this better.
1: Yeah, so obviously, as a database um, and a, especially a transactional database, making the kinds of uh, guarantees that we uh, that we claim to, to offer for availability and consistency, we're obviously losing customer data is uh, is just the worst thing we can do, and so uh, we want to throw all uh, all available resources at the problem whenever it uh, whenever it happens. You know, this became uh, the top priority. We were uh, we were cranking out. Uh, Tool was kind of on the fly to try and uh, and do a little surgery on the on the data on disk to try and bring the cluster back up as quickly as possible, and then the long term fix um, happened at a uh, at uh, a less uh, less extreme pace um, because we had to, we wouldn't be able to ship that feature before uh, you know a lot of testing and our next major release anyway.
0: And I like how you mentioned you guys were engineering new tools basically on the fly to basically say, hey, execute this, execute that. And this doesn't sound like these were just simple Bash shell scripts that you had to create for the customer. These were new Go algorithms, new Go routines that you guys had to create, and they had to execute those executables, right?
1: That's right, yeah. This was new, uh, new Go code that was written and being built into the, uh, the CockroachDB binary. Um, so we were shipping them new, uh, new releases of CockroachDB on the
0: fly. Oh well, there's an aspect of agile you hear about every day. <laughs> we're patching our actual core engine and shipping the whole thing yet again. So you're doing multiple releases within an hour. In this case, it sounds like, or a few hours. How about how long was the window that you guys were working in this state? Uh, fortunately, the uh, because of the way data is divided up in CockroachDB,
1: this did not manifest as a uh, as a total outage for the customer. It was uh, the cluster was still you know 99 plus percent available. Um, it was just that there were certain records that were. That, that were unavailable and so the customer was able to uh, you know get get by in this state. It ended up taking us um, I don't remember exactly it. it was it was a couple of days I think to get it uh, get get it all done.
0: Well you bring up a great point there about the fact that not everything was down. I think that's something that I missed initially and we probably should talk about a little bit more. you know the name cockroach suggests this thing is unkillable. Most of the application and user's applications in the database was up and running. Everything was okay, except for a few isolated records. And that's related to the way you guys actually distribute the data. And therefore, it was only this one subset that was had problems. And so that's that's incredibly powerful. Just that alone is a powerful story where if the customer is continuing on trucking, but they just had a problem in one area, that's a massive win for the customer as well as the a testament, if you will, to the architecture and the solution you guys have created. Well, I got to ask you this uh, particular element because I'm I'm very curious. Normally, in the case of software engineering, when we run into a, a failure, often we learn from that. We actually learn more from our failures than we do from our successes in many cases. So based on that concept, right, that you had to go through some learning, kind of tell me how this plays out. What lessons did you guys learn and how did it impact your journey as a company and a corporation, as a team, as you guys continue to to learn from that experience as well as others?
1: Well, one one lesson from this, it turns out that the that the issue around um, atomic replication changes uh, was something that we had uh, we had kind of made a note of early on, um, and we filed uh, filed an issue in our in our issue tracker on GitHub, and then kind of forgot about it because it seemed like it was such a remote possibility. One of the lessons from this is that uh, you, you know it really is important to uh, go through your uh, go through your backlog of old issues because there there may be real. Uh, Real things hiding there. If something uh, you know doesn't uh, d- doesn't feel right, uh, and it, it makes you think you need to, need to file an issue about it, uh, th- there's a very real chance that it will come back to uh, come back to bite you later.
0: Ben's real-world experience, where their software and the hands of real end users might be used in a way not previously anticipated, where a rare manual event, you know, that remote possibility, like adding a replica to the database, might be an edge case. Because as we all know, software is never finished. The happy path is one thing, but it's those edge cases that often get us. I really love hearing these stories of real world software deliveries, stories just like Ben's about founding Cockroach Labs, because we can all learn from them. We want to thank Ben Darnell for coming on the show. Thanks also to Aika Zikibayeva, Joe Gomes, Michael Waite. John Gibson, and Victoria Lawton. This episode was produced by Brent Siminoe and Caroline Craighead. Our sound designer is Christian Proham. Our audio team includes Lee Day, Stephanie Wonderlich, Mike Esser, Johan Philippine, Kim Wong, Nick Burns, Aaron Williamson, Karen King, Jared Oates, Rachel Ortel, Devin Pope, Matthias Foundez, Mike Compton, Ocean Matthews, Alex Tribulsi, and Victoria Lawton. I'm Burr Sutter, and this is Code Comments, an original podcast from Red Hat. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Hey, I'm Jeff Ligon. I'm the Director of Engineering for Edge and Automotive at Red Hat. When I say edge computing, the average person probably thinks smart device, smart fridge, smart watch, smart speaker. But edge computing goes way beyond that. A fridge with a Wi-Fi connection is one thing. A robotic vehicle that's sorting packets and using AI to plan its route through the warehouse, that's something else entirely. At that level of complexity, you've got software in the cloud, software in the warehouse, software in the robot. How would you even manage an update without a common system? This is where Red Hat's Edge solutions come in. We simplify and streamline operations from the cloud to the farthest edge, across all kinds of devices and use cases. Because everything should just work, everywhere. Find out more at redhat.com slash edge.